0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the mass arrest of environmental protesters charged with domestic terrorism under a Georgia law for exercising their First Amendment right to protest the destruction of a forest known as the Lungs of Atlanta to build an 85-acre cop city for military-style training of police for urban combat. Joining us to discuss right-wing efforts to turn political movements like the Forest Defenders and Black Lives Matter into criminal organizations while making martyrs and heroes out of the criminals who stormed the Capitol on January 6th is Carol Anderson, the Charles Howard Candler Professor and Chair of African American Studies at Emory University named a Guggenheim Fellow for Constitutional Studies. Her books include Bourgeois Radicals, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, One Person No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, and most recently, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, now out in a new paperback version. Then we'll examine the bipartisan bill from Senator Warner and Senator Thune's Senate Intelligence Committee giving the Commerce Secretary the power to ban TikTok, following a similar bill passed by the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Joining us to assess why, in the land of the free, we should be so afraid of being turned into communists by TikTok videos is Jessica Malugian, Director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, whose research focuses on technology issues including antitrust, online privacy, internet taxation, telecommunications, social media content, and net neutrality regulation. Then finally, we'll assess whether the Biden administration will make a stand against the assault on Israeli democracy from Netanyahu's far-right government by denying a visa to Israel's extremist finance minister Smotrich, who recently incited a pogrom calling on settlers to wipe out the Palestinian town of Ahuara. With more than 100 Jewish-American leaders, including the former head of AIPAC, issuing a statement opposing the visit to Washington by Smotrich, we will discuss whether Biden will follow the advice of his ambassador to Israel, who said he would throw Smotrich off the plane to Washington. Joining us is Mitchell Plitnik, the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy and former vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace a political analyst and frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. He served as director of the U.S. Office of B'Tselem and co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace. He is the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics, and he has a recent article at Mondo Weiss, Biden can rein in Israeli violence against Palestinians, but will he? And joining us now is Carol Anderson, who's the Charles Howard Candler Professor and Chair of African American Studies at Emory University, named a Guggenheim Fellow for Constitutional Studies. Her books include Bourgeois Radicals, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, and most recently The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, now out in paperback. Welcome to Background Briefing, Carol Anderson
1: so much
0: for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And just apropos the second race and guns in a fatally unequal America, your book, of course, traced how for decades the Second Amendment only protected the right of white people to own guns. Then you had states like Virginia enacting laws in the early 1800s making it a crime for free black people to carry guns. And, of course, then you had the infamous 1857 Dred Scott decision which ruled that black people were not citizens and its opinion was written by Chief Justice Roger Taney who had expressed concern that if blacks were to become citizens they could have the constitutional right to own firearms. So you have now down there in Atlanta where you are a somewhat similar situation where you've got armed police against forest defenders over the issue of uh, of this so-called uh, cop city that's being built in the middle of a a forest which is being often called the Lungs of Atlanta, and they've taken 85 acres on the top of this mountain, I guess, or hill, along with the, the demonstrators that defend the Atlanta forest campaign. They're also Black Voters Matter and the Movement for Black Lives. Uh, they're all involved in this protest, but Again, you have the asymmetry between armed cops and demonstrators who are environmentalists largely, and one of them was shot a couple of weeks ago by the police, and now Governor Kemp has signed an emergency order, and they have invoked domestic terrorism statutes that the state of Georgia has, which are incredibly broad. So almost... Hard to know where to begin here, but you're in the, in the neighborhood, Carol. Do you see this as another example of, of the kind of asymmetry that you wrote about in your book, The Second?
1: You know, I think about the Atlanta Massacre of 1906, where you had the labeling of black men um, as basically wild rapist beasts. Um, and that then allowed the massacre to happen. And when black folks shot back uh, to defend themselves, they then sent in basically the National Guard to disarm African-Americans and to define African-Americans, to continue to define African-Americans um, as as basically um, terrorists, as basically um, uncivilized as as those who do not deserve rights. It was part of that wave of violence that happened in Atlanta um, against African-Americans that then led to the massive disfranchisement, the laws for massive disfranchisement of black voters here in Georgia. Um, And so the asymmetry, the it's it's not one to one, but you can see the kind of broader overall pattern there. And, and understand that this forest is near a poor and working class black neighborhood. And so the idea of building um, Cop City, a place where police will train in urban warfare, um, train how to do high speed chases, train how to to uh, attack an apartment building, um, all of those things next to a poor and working class black neighborhood is so significant. Um, And the environmental damage that this will do. I mean, it's just, but part of what's happening here also is the kind of political language of crime, crime, crime. And as you know, from the book, The Second, that issue of black criminality um, courses through in terms of how to strip African-Americans of their of their rights um, because they're criminal they're inherently criminal they're inherently bi- violent and so what we see happening I believe with Cop City is that the the black political leadership here is is caught in this kind of Hobson's choice um, between looking like they're soft on crime which is defined as as black people. Or going after or trying to mollify, maintain political power by saying we are tough on crime. We are tough on crime. Look, we okayed the building of Cop City. So because remember, we also have here in Atlanta that just was scuttled for the time being where a a, a white, it's not a suburb, it's an enclave here in Atlanta, Buckhead, uh, has tried to secede <laughs> from the city of Atlanta hollering crime, crime, crime. You know, we've got all of that crime in Atlanta. And so it's that language of crime and criminality that is just driving this thing. And the way that crime is racialized is also really important in understanding what's at play.
0: Well, there seems to be a, a movement afoot at a national level, particularly with the Republican parties trying to turn political movements into criminal organizations. And again, when we talk about asymmetry, the greatest example of domestic terrorism was the assault on the Capitol on January the 6th by largely white terrorists who desecrated and defecated and and tried to hang the vice president and murder the Speaker. And yet they are now being treated as martyrs. McCarthy, the new Speaker, gave all the footage of the insurrection to uh, Fox News' Tucker Carlson to rewrite history. And they're in the process of doing that. And as much as they are intent on rewriting history and making victims out of terrorists, uh, out of these uh, white terrorists, they're also, of course, vilifying uh, Black Lives Matter and Antifa and trying to shift the blame on them. So this seems to be the tactic, isn't it?
1: really is, and it's one of the things that I bring out in the second in the afterword for the paperback is that when we look at the January 6th insurrection, we have to understand that it is fueled by the systematic denial of African-American citizenship rights. So when Newt Gingrich said they stole the election in Atlanta, they stole the election in Philadelphia, they stole the election in Milwaukee he's pointing to cities with sizable black populations. And so when they say if you only count the if you only count the legitimate votes, you will see that Trump won. That's saying that the black people who voted were illegitimate because they really weren't citizens. And so it's that language of theft, the theft of American democracy by all of these unruly black people who aren't legitimate citizens who live in those dangerous criminal urban areas. They're the ones who stole this democracy. That is the narrative that is out there, and that is what then makes justifiable the assault on the Capitol. That's that's the framing. Um, you know, it it's it, it is amazing how that act that we all saw with our own eyes gets rewritten as a tourist visit. Um, gets rewritten as, these are patriots. Trying to hang the vice president of the United States is not an act of patriotism.
0: But well, there is this- another movement of Carol, Carroll that I find even more dangerous because Trump is a sort of reckless fascist. Uh, as bad as he is, he's completely all over the place and his CPAC speech was just extraordinary in terms of its bizarre, meandering, but he's still the leader of the Republican Party and still the front runner. But the guy that's challenging him, although he hasn't announced it yet, but it's pretty clear, and Fox News is backing him, is Governor DeSantis. And his entire campaign is built upon a racist dog whistle, wokeness. I mean, isn't that also an incredibly dangerous trend?
1: It absolutely is, because When his attorney had to define wokeness in front of a judge, he said it is a belief that there are systemic inequalities and that people have a right to to undo those inequalities. Now, so that becomes the, the, the definition is that there are systemic inequalities. But in this language that they deploy, wokeness is anything that the right wing doesn't like. So you see the takeover of the colleges and universities there. Um, you see the he's also getting ready to propose gun legislation. Uh, again, we've got to see this as part and parcel that guns are the ways that the white community can protect itself from those who are unworthy, from those who are an inherent threat, and 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 DeSantis is playing straight into that. Um, the anti woke legislation, the the the, high, the the kidnapping of asylum seekers in Texas and flying them to Martha's Vineyard, um, the the banning of the uh, of the AP course in African American studies, saying that it lacks educational value. Um, it's those sorts of things. One is the, an ability to erase the history of a people. And two, it is the ability to then craft this as it is legit as if it is legitimate, um, as if it is really good policy making than what it really is, which is a full blown assault on American democracy and the people who live here. So is this whole
0: idea of white replacement, which has traction? on the American right and in the Republican Party, and particularly uh, the further you go to the right, the more zealous they are about it. I can't see any separation between that ridiculous atavistic idea than also the gun culture. They Aren't they one in the same? In other words, the more people feel that, that they're being replaced, and you recall that the Charlottesville Nazi much. They said the Jews will not replace us. Well, it's the Jews, the blacks, and the Hispanics will not replace us. That's the new mantra, I guess, although it's not necessarily expressed. It seems to me that that mindset is inextricably bound in with the idea of the Second Amendment being to protect white people.
1: I mean, so think about the the massacre in Buffalo. Um, here was a young white man who had basically imbibed, um, hardlined the great replacement theory, and saw it as his job to take his semi-automatic weapon to protect white people from the threat of black people. So he goes to a grocery store, the only grocery store in the black neighborhood, and then he scouts it out to figure out when more people will be there. Um, so he's doing his re- reconnaissance work and then he goes in and he starts mowing down black folk. That is the the fusion of, of, of gun culture and 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 white supremacy. Um that fear that black people will replace that that the the value system, the culture, the political power, the cultural power. All of that will be replaced by black people, by immigrants, um, by Jews. All of that is infused with how do we protect whiteness and how do we protect it? We protect it by the Second Amendment, the way that we understand it in terms of, of, of giving whites penultimate power to define who is the threat and who is worthy of being defended. So just in
0: the last couple of minutes there, Carol, going back to Cop City in Atlanta and the demonstrations and the arrests of about 20 people, largely environmental protesters, protesting the forest being 85 acres being turned into Cop City, as you pointed out, it's going to be a militarized police training ground to train police in urban warfare. And it's bad enough that you have the federal government, the Pentagon, Transferring massive amounts of military equipment to police forces around the country, and the fact that they, a lot of police forces recruit former veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan who patrol the streets as though they're patrolling in a foreign country full of bad guys. So that's the war that's going on in Atlanta. Is there any way that the First Amendment can protect these people that are being arrested? Because again, this is all about criminalizing the First Amendment.
1: Unfortunately, because we have a court system that has been as tainted and skewed as it is, and that the language of the First Amendment um, has basically been bastardized, whether there is protection of the First Amendment, uh, First Amendment protections for them, it's going to take a a, a team of incredible attorneys um, arguing that case. Um, underlying it, um, as you noted, has been the militarization of the police, um, and even in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, we have seen more police killings. Um, we have seen this this pouring in of 90 million dollars into this facility while the city has sent back returned 10 million dollars that was supposed to go for rent support for for poor people i mean so you get this this asymmetry happening across the board if your concern is crime then you do what it takes to reduce crime and it's not like we don't know what that is but we also know that the language of crime has been hyped as a, as a dog whistle to drive fear, 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 fear um, as a way to say you must arm yourself because as we get the great replacement, as there's more of them, how do we protect ourselves? Um, and so this is where we are right now. And, and I mean, it's, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lord help us, um, calling for a national divorce. Um, it is it is Tucker Carlson um, doing a splice and dice on the the footage, the security footage that Kevin McCarthy turned over to him exclusively, then cherry pick out to say, oh, this was January 6th was was peaceful and it, it was just a a, a quiet protest. All of those narratives, So, really what we're talking about here are the power of narratives and shaping how we understand what we're looking at. And and so, so much of our work is helping to intervene in those reigning narratives so that we can have the kind of just society that we deserve.
0: Well, Carol Anderson, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
1: Uh, Thank you, Ian, for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Carol Anderson, who's the Charles Howard Candler Professor and Chair of African American Studies at Emory University, named a Guggenheim Fellow for Constitutional Studies. Her books include Bourgeois Radicals, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, One Person, No Vote, Our Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, and most recently, the second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, now out in paperback. We're going to take a brief station break and be back with an assessment of why in the land of the free we should be so afraid of being turned into communists by TikTok videos. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jessica Malugian, who is Director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, whose research focuses on technology issues including antitrust, online privacy, internet taxation, telecommunications, social media content, and net neutrality regulation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jessica Malugin.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And at least at the rhetorical level, tensions between the U.S. and China at the highest level seem to be heating up. With today, the new Chinese foreign minister urged the United States to put on the brakes to avoid confrontation and conflict. And there have been similar warnings coming from Xi Jinping. So, with the Senate Intelligence Committee led by Mark Warner introducing a bill today, a bipartisan bill, along with Senator John Toon. This uh, would seem to be adding to that kind of uh, atmosphere of increased tension, if not paranoia.
3: Yeah, I think it's certainly an escalation, um, and it might invite further regulatory retaliation from China on U.S. businesses. Unfortunately, one of the few bipartisan issues uh, left in Washington these days is a real distrust and dislike for the Chinese Communist Party, uh, which there's some very good reasons to be concerned there, not a great human rights record to say the least, but in terms of being able to trade and do business with the country, um, you'd hate to see that relationship break down so much that it led to more serious military moves between the countries.
0: Well, the economies are still entwined, and if there is any serious decoupling... It's going to hurt both sides. I mean, the United States imported more than $530 billion worth of goods from China in 2022. But as an indication of the tensions, China's central bank, the People's Bank of China, sold nearly $900 billion in U.S. Treasury securities that it held at the end of 2022. So I'm curious from your point of view, Jessica, I mean... There's not going to be any winners if these two economies are decoupled.
3: I think that's right. There's a lot to be felt in terms of hurt on both sides. And I think that the TikTok example is such an interesting one because, you know, there's almost, I, I think, around, the numbers differ a little bit, but about 100 million U.S. users of TikTok. And that includes lots of small businesses and lots of very enthusiastic content posters who really love this service. And it's dragging a lot of young people into some pretty big international questions um, on military aggression and trade policy. And you're seeing sort of there's there's technical questions about this. How would this work? Does the government have the First Amendment right to even ban this at all? Uh, But I think for a lot of Normal people who just enjoy their uh, videos on TikTok. This is sort of bringing all of those larger things very personally into their hand. Um, I I worry that politicians have grossly underestimated the popularity of this app, and um, also I'm not quite sure what can be achieved by doing it in Congress that wouldn't be better dealt with at the Treasury Department that's been reviewing TikTok and concerns with U.S. data security for two years. TikTok has spent a billion dollars on a plan to store U.S. data differently and take a bunch of security measures. There's an oversight board. There's people to review the algorithm um, in order to... Assure people that US data is safe and out of the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, but also that the company can continue to operate within the United
2: States.
0: Well, let me quote you, Jessica. I have zero concerns with the Chinese Communist Party changing the algorithm to influence what U.S. users see. We have a free flow of ideas and speech in this country, and if we're so weak as to be turned into communists by TikTok videos, we have a much bigger problem with the representative government as a concept. So, So, yeah, there's...
3: there's There's sort of two pieces of concern here. And one I I give some merit to and the other one, which is that I don't. So there's a concern that U.S. data, perhaps some of it rather personal, is flowing from U.S. users into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. I certainly understand those concerns, and I think that there are mitigating steps the company can take in its negotiations with the Treasury Department to assuage those fears. The other concern is that the Chinese Communist Party is going to program the TikTok algorithm to show you pro-communist information. And I would just say that we have a very fine tradition in this country of not suppressing information because we're worried, you know, it's going to pick your Cold War era or whatever. It's going to hypnotize you into being um, a bad American. I think, you know, if we all continue to believe that we are endowed by our creator, whoever that might be, with the right to elect our leaders and think critically for ourselves, we can't be afraid of content on TikTok. Um, I don't think that's, by the way, happened yet, but it certainly could. And, you know, I, I, for me, that particular set of concerns aren't as compelling as the national security concerns of data, U.S. data going out to China. So that's sort of what I was getting at is that, you know, Americans can think for themselves and and I bet they're probably pretty good at spotting what's Chinese propaganda on their phones too.
0: But the Canadians, of course, have banned it as well for government use and same with a lot of European countries. So there are obviously legitimate concerns, but it's one thing to ban it for government use, but why try to ban it for, you know, private use? I, I don't see the point of that.
3: No, I, I agree with you. And I think that if you think about what kind of information might be captured and how much more sensitive that information is in the hands of someone who's maybe at a restricted site with military equipment and things like that, you know, that certainly makes sense. And um, the government has the right to do that. And frankly, I don't know why you need to be on your TikTok on your government phone anyway while you're at work. But uh, I digress on that point. But the banning it for the general population, as you mentioned, is something very, very different. We have a fine free speech tradition in this country um, that not everyone around the world enjoys. Uh, And we need to protect that, even when it's things that we don't like or might make us feel uncomfortable. Um, I still trust the individual to make those decisions with what they want to view. And if people have those concerns about TikTok, they certainly don't have to put it on their phone. Um, But... I don't think taking something away that people have used for their small businesses or just used in their form of self-expression, when there might be a way to assuage the real concerns but preserve that ability, is certainly a road I'd rather have us travel down.
0: So specifically this new bill introduced by Senator Warner and Senator Tune of the Intelligence Committee, it's a bipartisan bill that will empower the Secretary of Commerce to take action against technology companies based in China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, and Cuba. So I imagine those other countries don't really count. They're not exactly famous for producing um, internet technology. So to that extent, it seems to be quite clearly aimed at China. But what do you make of the fact that the, the head of TikTok, its CEO, Shuzi Xu? Zichu, is set to testify at the House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing on March the 23rd. So what are we hearing back from TikTok?
3: Well, TikTok has made, they've been in negotiations for two years. You know, all of this started under the last administration, the Trump administration, where President Trump, then President Trump, tried to ban the app with an executive order, which, of course, the courts immediately threw out. Um, And it, it, it just was an unconstitutional move. So... They've been in negotiations with the committee over at the Treasury Department for two years trying to find a way to take care of the security concerns and continue to operate in this country. They've spent, reports are over a billion dollars, reconfiguring their data storage, um, proposing oversight from a, a U.S. security company. They really have a band of their own experts who've been working with government experts to try to find a way to make this safe and secure. And so that no data is, is, can be accessed in mainland, in mainland China and that no U.S. data is ever subjected to that kind of security breach. They've, it's an enormous amount of time and trouble. And um, for Congress to sort of come in and make some political hay out of it, I think, is a shame for people who enjoy the app, um, I have no doubt that the hearing, like most tech hearings, will be more of a media circus than a fact-finding mission, and that's unfortunate because you have sort of the sillier concerns in this mixed in with probably some reasonable real national security concerns. But it seems that there are also steps to take to deal with those. And I'm not sure I'm dragging the CEO before uh, a committee in Congress will move that agenda forward in a real way. Um, but again, I think there's a lot of political hay to be made uh, from both sides of the aisle on beating up on China. And, um, but you know, um, unfortunately, the reality of that is just what we were saying earlier. There's a lot of consumer hurt and economic hurt that gets mixed up in that, um, that, that really isn't serving the constituents of any of these members of Congress well.
0: Well, obviously, a lot of the members of the Congress—they're certainly nowadays—it's because it's so toxic in terms of its partisanship—that there's a lot of grandstanding going on, and a lot of these characters are technical Luddites to begin with. You know, I mean, you're talking about the young people. There aren't too many young people in the Senate and this in the House. Then there's certainly not too many young people. In the Supreme Court who are hearing all kinds of incredibly important cases, particularly Mm -hmm. over Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Mm -hmm. At least Justice Sotomayor admitted with some humility that they don't necessarily know what they're dealing with. They don't have the technical expertise to understand the issues involved and make these critical rulings. So as bad as the Congress is, it's sort of even worse to have... The Supreme Court become the final arbiter of these highly technical issues. Um, what's your opinion on that?
3: I think it does layer put another layer of complexity to these questions because the technical information is something you have to wade through too. And if you've, um, you know, you heard the justices sort of be very self-effacing during the Section Two Hundred and Thirty hearings and say, you know, we are not the nine, you know, people with the most expertise about the internet on earth here gathered today. And that's a that's a great attitude to bring to it, and I'm sure they learned a lot through those cases. But I don't think you'll find that in Congress, where if you've ever watched one of these tech hearings, there's very little explaining and learning going on on the technical stuff or the legal questions. There's a lot of grandstanding and sound biting and um, you know sort of a, a, emotional abuse of, of witnesses going on because it's very important that you know these politicians get their five cents out of the deal, which means, you know, a hit on cable news later that night and a sound b- bite in the paper. And that's, you know, that's really not the hard work of legislating. Um, these should be fact-finding exercises. There should be both sides represented and um, lots of lots of technical explanations and legal explanations and options. So, um, you know, it is Congress's job to do oversight and to make the laws and legislate. I'm glad to see that they're grappling with the issues in some sense, but also, you know, the cybersecurity expertise um, at the Treasury Department's Committee on Foreign Investment is probably much superior and does probably a decent job of taking some of the political heat out of the equation here. Um, They're just trying to find a way to make this work. That protects Americans with national security concerns, but allows the company to go forward. It's an incredibly popular app. And, um, you know, I, I, I think really the political unpopularity of banning it outright is vastly underestimated for the reasons you were saying. You know, this is the people using TikTok are not in the same age group and probably a lot of other groups um, that most members of Congress are and it's become sort of ubiquitous in a lot of people's lives, and to just kind of snatch that away would really be a huge upset to people. I don't think they're totally prepared for the backlash on that.
0: Well, maybe it'll motivate young people to vote. I mean, (laughs) that would be a good thing. (laughs) Um, Well,
3: uh, yeah, that's a good silver lining. I mean, I'm all for that.
0: Right. But it seems like TikTok is trying to sort of uh, deal with this. I don't know what... The limits of what they can do are, but they've moved their headquarters from China to Singapore in 2020, right? Mm -hmm. Is there anything more they can do uh, short of selling themselves by dance selling the whole thing to an American company?
3: Well, I think that the you know as the negotiations go on at the Treasury Department, the the offer on the table is sort of there would be an enormous amount of U.S. government oversight of the data flows for U.S. users within TikTok. They're willing to give them access to all that. They could review the algorithm. It's had the queuing function for that to make sure nothing is, is being touched by the Chinese Communist Party in that sense and that they would store all that U.S. data on a U.S.-owned cloud um, you know, by a U.S. service provider and that there's you know no sort of just, just completely separate it so that there aren't even any Chinese nationals who have access to that data. And there's a lot of complexity in that. And there'd be a special waiver they'd need to be able to not hire anyone who's a Chinese national and not have that be discriminatory. But if it was a national security concern, they can get that waiver and they can say, you know, listen, the data itself is insulated from that um, Chinese connection. Now, you know, whether that's technically possible, is something that I think that's what the experts at the Treasury Department Committee are trying to figure out. You know, can we really make this safe? Um, So I think after spending a billion dollars, according to them, I think they're really willing to do whatever it takes to stay in business in the U.S. So they're doing all they can. But of course, after all that money and two years of negotiations to have that dashed because Congress voted it away uh, would be a huge blow to the company and a huge blow to their users. Um, But we'll see. I mean, you know, maybe they'll surprise me and this hearing will have some real informative national security information in it. Um, I I think that you, the people seeking to ban this are really going to have to convince the American people that this is something that's worth giving up. And I don't think that to date they've made that case.
0: Well, Jessica Malusian, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: It's always my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Jessica Malugian, who's the director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, whose research focuses on technology issues including antitrust, online privacy, internet taxation, telecommunications, social media content, and net neutrality regulation. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of whether the Biden administration will make a stand against the assault on Israeli democracy from Netanyahu's far-right government by denying a visa to Israel's extremist finance minister, Smotrich. I put a spell on you Because you're
2: mine Stop the things you do. I ain't lying. love. I'll go soon. I ain't. Somewhere, say, fi.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mitchell Plitnik, the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy and a former vice president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, a political analyst and frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. He served as director of the U.S. Office of B'Tselem and co-director of the Jewish Voice for Peace. And he's the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of Except for Palestine, the Limits of Progressive Politics, and he has a recent article at Mondo Weiss, Biden can rein in Israeli violence against Palestinians, but will he? Welcome to Background Briefing, Mitchell Plitnik.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: So Mitchell, ai don't know whether it's, you could say it's a growing controversy, but we'll see what's going to happen here when there's a lot of pressure to for the Biden administration to deny a visa to Israel's extremist finance minister, Smotrich who's arriving here soon for an investment conference in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. More than 100 Jewish-American leaders have signed statements opposing the visit Mm -hmm. by the leader of the Religious Zionism Party in Netanyahu's right-wing coalition, saying they reject the notion that someone must be accorded respect simply by dint of serving in the Israeli government. And quite a number of prominent uh, people have signed this Mm -hmm. letter including the former chief executive of the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, uh, yeah. AIPAC, uh, Thomas yeah. Dine. Tundin. So what do you think of the chances of the Biden administration denying a visa to this extremist Israeli finance minister?
4: Yeah, uh, that that letter is actually remarkable. Um, it, it is, uh, to my knowledge, unprecedented that those leaders of the Jewish community, and we're talking people who are very much in the center center right of the of the Jewish community and and some pretty noteworthy names there would say that an Israeli minister should be barred from entering the United States. As far as I know, this has never come close to happening before. So that is it is a big deal. That being said, I very much doubt that uh, the Biden administration would take such a step. I, I think it's it's politically it's it it would require a lot more time of the sort of behavior that we've seen Israel engaging in for the first two plus months of this government before, you know, enough ill will was built up that that an American administration would take such a step that would off, open it up to uh, you know criticism from the other party that would that that could hit pretty hard. So I, I'd be su- very surprised if that happens. But the fact that that, you know, these forces are calling for it in and of itself is a pretty big deal.
0: Well, Smotrich recently said after a couple of West Bank settlers were killed by a Palestinian, he said I think the village of Hawara where it happened on the West Bank, I think the village of Hawara needs to be wiped out. Yeah. I think the state of Israel should do it. Mm-hmm. And this has led to this pogrom where religious settlers attacked uh, Hawara, yeah. burning dozens of buildings and cars, they killed a Palestinian. This led the leader of Israel's opposition, former Prime Minister Yair Lapid, to characterize Smotrich's comments as an incitement uh, to a war crime. Yeah. So it seems like in Israel itself, at least they're characterizing this guy in a way that seems appropriate.
4: Well, I mean, actually, Smotrich's uh, comments about wiping out uh, Huara uh, came after uh the uh oh, The though <laughs> it came after the first pogrom. There's been another one since in Hoara, not to mention some other uh settler attacks. Plus today the Israeli army killed six Palestinians uh in a raid on Janine and injured ha- I don't yet know how many others, uh, but certainly it'll be a large number. So Smotrich, uh, however, did uh, and has been saying things, as has uh, his his fellow extremist minister, Tamar ben uh been saying things for weeks that encourage these kinds of actions. And it's important to note the the pogrom that happened in Hawara, as it usually is the case uh, when settlers rampage through Palestinian towns and villages, they did it under the protection of Israeli soldiers. Um, This is often goes unreported, but but Israeli soldiers protect the settlers when they go into Palestinian towns. And if a Palestinian should dare defend themselves against against the settlers, that Palestinian can be beaten, can be arrested uh, or even killed by the soldiers because they would have the, you know, the nerve to attack a a settler who is trying to burn down their house or or assault their their neighbors or themselves. So, um, I mean war crimes, you know, Yair Lapid, let's also remember, you know, was the prime minister last year. And last year, Israel set a record for the most Palestinians killed since 2005. Um, so it's not like Yair Lapid has room to talk about war crimes. Uh, there there were plenty under his watch that that he himself directed. This government is undoubtedly worse. There's no question about that. But um, unfortunately, it is simply a matter of degree. This this government is really not doing things that are different from its predecessors. They're just doing them at a you know faster pace and a and a, and a, and a, and a somewhat larger scale.
0: Well, the Israeli press are reporting that the U.S. ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, mm-hmm. said that if he was on the same flight to Washington with Smotrich, he would quote throw him off the plane. Yeah, um- so. At least at, at the ambassadorial level, somebody in the Biden administration is speaking up, but you're concerned that they're not speaking up sufficiently and loudly enough.
4: I mean, Nides did make that comment, but Nides has made enough other comments that support, you know, Israel. I'm pretty close to at least to under. Unconditionally, that nobody really took that that comment very seriously. Although a few people responded to it, but um, it's not a matter of none of that is a matter of serious concern in Israel. They have learned from long experience, uh, many 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 years, that what the United States says, if Israel is really going too far from the United States, the United States will take action as, for example, George H.W. Bush did when Israel wanted to essentially scuttle potential peace talks by setting up a whole bunch of new settlements in the West Bank. This is back in, in 1990. Um, and George H.W. Bush said, well, if you do that, we're going to cancel the loan guarantees, which at that time were very, very important to Israel's economy. And Israel, at that time, their fairly extreme right-wing prime minister, um, Yitzhak Shamir, back, backed off. So, when the United States wants to wants to send Israel a message, they they take action. When they just uh, when they just say things, Israel doesn't care because it doesn't affect them. As long as the things they want the United States to do continue, then there's no real pressure on them to change their behavior. So Nantes' comment didn't really reflect much. Um, there's clearly the there's cl- and this administration, the Biden administration. Um, they entered into uh, into office, you know, in, tw- in 2021 and have maintained a policy of of uh, basically trying to uh, not antagonize Israel, not have any sort of political fights and, and more or less ignore uh, the Palestinians. So uh, they're trying desperately to hold on to that policy and it's become very difficult uh, because Israel's taking such aggressive actions and it's becoming difficult even domestically. So um, there, there may come a point where the Biden administration will take action. Um, it is possible they have the means to do it. Um, but so far, they haven't indicated that there, there hasn't been an indication that that's actually starting, although clearly, you know, they have to be beginning to think, at least think about it, because there is so much pressure from you know, relatively conservative pro-Israel kinds of circles.
0: So, as your article points out, Mitchell, writing in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper last week, former Israeli diplomat Alon Pincus said, when will the U.S. stop pretending that things are normal in Netanyahu's Israel? Mm -hmm. Friends don't let friends rescind democracy. So when is that issue going to start resonating? Because even though Israel is not a democracy for the Palestinians, It certainly has always touted its democratic credentials as being the only democracy in the Middle East. And yet that very democracy, that very claim, is now under threat from an authoritarian leader. Netanyahu, Mm -hmm. who's modelling himself on the authoritarian leader in Hungary, is literally following uh, Viktor Orban's playbook, uh, going after the press to suppress the press, and most importantly, to sort of neuter... Or politically control the Supreme Court, yeah so this is a massive move. This would be like Trump basically taking over the Supreme Court mm-hmm. so not I, that he hasn 't done that by the way yeah,
4: <laughs> but I think there 's a couple of things that we should that we should note on that um, one I mean Netanyahu is following the playbook that Orban uh sort of refined. Um, But Orban himself kind of got a lot of these ideas from Netanyahu. Netanyahu's been at this for uh, a very long time. He's just done it much more gradually uh, because, uh, uh, you know, because Israel is just a different culture uh, than Hungary. Uh, Netanyahu has kind of been at the center from the very beginning of this global rightward shift that has happened over the past 15 years um, Netanyahu has been in the middle of it, and has been at the vanguard in many cases. So um, so that kind of goes both ways. Also, you know, when we when we when we start, you know, the the conversation from, well, Israel has never been a, a, a democracy for the Palestinians. But, you know, but I mean, anything that comes after that is, you know, it. it, it is kind of negated uh, in the sense that if you're not a democracy for for everyone, then you're not a democracy. Um, South Africa was a democracy for white Afrikaners. Um, it was was considerably less so if you were not a white Afrikaner. Um, and there were degree much like with Israel, there are also degrees of non-democracy, uh, just as you have in Israel. Palestinian citizens of Israel have uh, faced a certain level of discrimination. Palestinians in the West Bank face a much more intense level Palestinians in Gaza are literally being strangled. so um you know I think so that's that's sort of the first point. The second point that I think is really important to note is what Israel does in terms of its own democracy um, is you know can at least be argued to be an internal matter. Um, we have many allies the United States does uh, that are you know, even even the de- truly democratic ones are usually imperfect democracies. Uh, we have allies that are autocracies that are flat out brutal. Di- some of the most brutal dictatorships in in the world. So, yeah, you, you, know,
0: you mean like the, ja- Jared Kushner's best friend, yeah, uh, exactly, Mohammed bin Salman?
4: Exactly, um, or the United Arab Emirates, um, or mm-hmm. you know, any any number of uh, countries all around the world um mm-hmm. in many many different places uh, um we we can you know and, and historically it, that this is not uh, in any way anomalous so you know it, it is it's interesting that many of the people now who are yelling and screaming for the united states to do something before israel destroys its own judiciary which is exactly what netanyahu is trying to do um, many of those people are the same people who have for years insisted that it is not the united States' place to uh, to to you know dictate internal Israeli policies, and the internal policies they are talking about are policies towards the Palestinians, which is you know what which is supposedly uh, uh, referring to a people under occupation, so not an internal matter it, it that becomes an international matter. Um, So there's a there's a deep hypocrisy in these calls to the United States to do something about uh, Netanyahu's assault on the Israeli judiciary. Um, not, which is not to say that there's anything that's wrong with the United States doing something about that, except it should not be the priority. The priority should be what Israel is doing to people who are not citizens of its own state, uh, and to the people who are, who are not Jewish and are, are therefore not privileged. So, um, there are things the Biden administration can do. And on the left, people often quickly default to what's thought of in Washington as the nuclear option of threatening, threatening military aid um but you don't have to go all the way there. Israel very much wants the United States to be facilitating an expansion of the Abraham Accords, the the you know the um the the normalization agreements between Israel and various Arab states that you know are you know that ignores the Palestinians and just normalizes relations anyway despite the fact that things are terrible for the Palestinians. Um especially they want to see those accords extended to Saudi Arabia. Uh, This is a high priority. So the United States can freeze that cooperation. That's one thing. There are all sorts of different um, uh, um, business uh, arrangements that the United States has with Israel, as it does with other allies, uh, to facilitate cross-border cooperation in industry, business, tech, lots of different things. Again, the United States can threaten that. Israel's economy is already starting to lose a lot of the faith and credit around the world because of Netanyahu's actions. So the uh, people in Israel are very nervous about the economic future. So anything that makes that threat even bigger would definitely be felt in Israel. So the United States can do things without even getting to the question Uh, That's so politically volatile in Washington of military aid, which we should be, incidentally, uh, uh, um, you know, enforcing our laws about which we don't do um, that that prevents that aid from being used in violation of human rights norms. Um, But that's but but that is uh, a difficult political hill to climb. So but we don't have to go there. The Biden administration can do other things that are quieter, less dramatic. Uh, less politically volatile or dangerous, and could, would be still very effective uh, on protecting Palestinian rights. They just don't want to. They just don't mm-hmm. have any interest in doing so.
0: Well, just in the last minute, though, I mean, it's not as if the Israeli people aren't up in arms, at least a good percentage of them. I don't think it's a majority, but there have been hundreds of thousands of people protesting uh, this movement mm-hmm. by Netanyahu to control the judiciary and the Supreme Court. Yep. Um, so... There ought to be some solidarity with those people, surely.
4: There, there. I think they Those, those are legitimate protests. They're, they deserve some support. At the same time, it is it's worth you know kind of holding folks, those folks, feet to the fire because many of those same people who are leading those protests uh, tried very hard. There, it's becoming more and more difficult with all the violence that's happening, but they have been trying very hard to keep the question of the Palestinians out of it um and to not apply that and and that is you know exceedingly hypocritical i mean you'll fight for democracy for yourself but not for other people under the rule of the same government that kind of i, I would have to say should, should limit uh the sense of solidarity that we feel because that's not democracy democracy is for everyone or it's for no one
0: right but i think you, you've got to take your allies as you find them i mean it's a, obviously the country's moved far to the right and it's going to move even further to the right unless it's stopped. So you at least have to support efforts to stop it becoming another fascist country like
4: Hungary. Like Hungary? It, 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 I think that's a worthy cause. The fact is, though, that stopping this particular, this one attack on the Israeli judiciary isn't going to do that. Um, Israel has been tre- trending towards the right for 40 years. Um, it, that, that trend has been ebbing and flowing, but it's been pronounced for the last, certainly for the last uh, two decades. People, many people, myself included, have seen this coming and have been warning about it. And there's no reason to think, even if the uh, the the threat to the judiciary is stopped, that that's going to stop Israel's move to the right, because it won't.
0: Well, Mitchell Plitnik, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
4: And I thank you very much for having me.
0: This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.